subject we are approaching tonight is a bit distinct from many of the things we read in the Bible that we think about and, and read with wonder and say, man, that would have been awesome to see that. Could you imagine seeing the waters of the Red Sea standing up on either side of you as you pass through on dry ground? Could you imagine seeing that? Could you imagine seeing the Jordan River when it was at flood stage, stand in a heap upriver so some two million Jews could cross over the Jordan into the land of promise? That would have been amazing. I think it would have been pretty cool to be standing there when Lazarus came hopping out of the tomb with his grave clothes still wrapped around him. I think it would have been pretty cool to be with Peter and John at the gate beautiful when they told the lame man, I don't have what you're looking for, which is money. But what I do have, you're about to get in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And immediately his ankle bones received strength and he went his way leaping and praising God. Man, I would have liked to have seen that. Wouldn't you? The Bible is filled with things that we read and we think about. Boy, I'd like to see that, but we can't look at our text tonight through that lens. We have to change our brains, so to speak, as we read this text, because we're not going to say, boy, I wish I could have seen that. Tonight, what we're reading is what we're going to see and what we're going to be present at. We're going to read tonight about our future, our experience with the Lord as he rules and reigns on the earth for a thousand years. Now, in Revelation 19.8, I have a bunch of scripture for you. Big surprise. In Revelation 19.8, it says, And to her it was granted to be arrayed, arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of who? Of the saints. That needed to be read in order to understand 19.11 to 14. John says, I saw heaven open to behold a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with the robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in what? Fine linen. The fine linen is what? The righteous acts of who? The saints. Clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now, we're in that scene. We're going to be on one of those white horses. We're going to be returning to the earth with Jesus. As he comes back, not as the Lamb of God, but as the Lion of Judah. And as he takes control over this earth. And what a wonderful scene this is going to be to see and play a part in. And that gives birth to this scene in 1911 to 14 of Revelation. Gives birth to our topic tonight, which is simply the millennium. We're going to look at the millennium. We're going to talk a lot about the elements within that whole thousand-year period. Now, we could begin by talking about the fact that the millennium fulfills the fall feast of tabernacles and things of that nature. But I want to take a bit of a different look at it, so to speak, and talk more about the practical things that are going to happen during this thousand years. Now, our series is titled The Time of the Signs. Are there signs that tell us the millennials coming? Sure there are. The rebirth of the nation of Israel, the defection from truth of much of the church, the rapture of the church will be a sign that it's some seven years off. Also, the great tribulation is going to precede immediately 
that millennial reign of Christ on the earth. And all of these things are either fulfilled, being fulfilled, or showing signs that their fulfillment is near. Now, a lot of people ask the question, why? Why, after being in heaven with Jesus for seven years, would we need to come back to the earth or even want to come back to the earth for that matter? Because this place is a mess. Why would we want to come back? Others say, well, actually, there is no millennium. It's just a figure of speech. And still others say, and I've heard this question asked in open Q&A times, uh, more times than I can even recall, are we already in the millennium? That's a big no. Otherwise, we miss the rapture, and that's bad. And what happened to the tribulation? We haven't seen the things that the Bible describes take place. We also have to ask the question, if there is no millennium, or we're in the millennium, what does this mean, and when did this happen? In Revelation 24 through 6, we're told, By John I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls who had been beheaded for the witness, their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their, on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for how long? A thousand years. A thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power. By the way, we're part of the first resurrection. Amen. The second death has no power over us. Amen? Amen? But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for how long? A thousand years. I've been asked the question many times as well. When does the first resurrection take place? We would better understand it as a category rather than an event. The first resurrection is a group of people who are, who are called saints in Scripture, and it would be inclusive of Old Testament saints, the saints of the church age, and tribulation saints as well, as that text indicates. Now, some say that the phrase a thousand years is a linguistic uh, equivalent of phrases like the days of Noah. Well, listen, the argument that it's not a definitive time period is done away with here in just one chapter where we see six times in Revelation 20 this phrase is used over and over and over from a pair of Greek words that mean 1,000 years. There's no other way to interpret it. The Latin says milliannum, a thousand years. So there is no figurative or allegorical meaning to them. They are literal and there's no other way to view it. There's going to be a thousand year reign of Jesus Christ and we with him on the earth. Amen? Amen. So, what is the point of the millennium? Who lives in it? What's the world going to be like during it? And rather than our usual uh, trio of observations, we're going to have a quartet uh, tonight. We'll look at four aspects of the millennium, and I hope we're also going to answer some questions about it along the way. Now, our findings are going to be these. We're going to find the reason for it, the restoration of the earth during it, the ruler of the earth in it, and the result of it. Those will be our considerations tonight. So pray with me, please. Father, we are so grateful that you have told us all things beforehand, uh, that we know what's coming. Uh, we know there's an escape before it, and we know there's a return where we come with you back to this earth as you uh, rule and reign in righteousness. So Lord, I pray that we would gain a better understanding and clarity 
and uh, even a bit of excitement, God, that this is what awaits us in our future. And we will be here and we will see this. So help us in that, we pray, and give us ears to hear what your Spirit is saying. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, what is the reason for the millennium? If you think about it, at this point in time, the earth has been judged. All Israel has been saved. The church has been glorified. And the saints have been at the bema seat of Christ and have been rewarded. So why come back? Well, as we read a moment ago in Revelation 20, that the beheaded saints of the tribulation are going to rule and reign with him for a thousand years. But they're not alone in this blessed privilege. Daniel 7.18 says, But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Now, Revelation 3.21 also says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So if you're going to sit on the throne with Jesus, that means you're going to be ruling with him because the throne implies leadership and rulership. Now, Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, and tribulation saints are all going to rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Now, what our scope of responsibility is going to be, I believe, is implied by the parable of the talents and the minas that we talked about on Sunday. Those who did much with what they were given receive much. And I do believe that's part of that seven-year period. We'll be at the marriage supper of the Lamb without question, and we'll be at the Bema seat of Christ or the judgment seat of Christ to have our works uh, tested by fire. Now, we're going to talk about the ruler of the millennium in a few moments. You already know who that is, right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's Jesus. Amen? Amen? Now, but we need to establish first the reason for the millennium, which we could summarize as this. The reason for the millennium is to reveal to the world the righteousness of God. The reason for the millennium is to reveal to the world the righteousness of God. Now, think about this. God had a chosen people known as the Jews, and they still are, right? They did a poor job at representing God to the world. For they saw it as an exclusive promise to them when God actually commissioned them the same way he did the church. He wanted them to be identified as a, a people who were set apart to God, just as the church is today. And the church hasn't done any better in representing God because the church is always fighting and bickering like the original disciples were before they were filled with the Spirit about who's right and who's wrong and who's going to be the greatest and all those things. So both groups failed at rightly representing the righteousness of God. So God himself is going to come as the Lion of Judah, and he is going to show the world what righteousness really looks like. Now, our first and last observations are connected, so we'll see this more clearly when we arrive at the end of the millennium in our third hour tonight. Now, God has always been sovereign. Amen. Right? God has always been sovereign over this creation. But this world has been under the domination and direction of the God of this world, or the prince of the power of the air. Satan is referred to in Scripture as such. Now, it has never, other than however long the pre-fall of Adam period lasted, been, the run, been run the way it should be, because there's nobody that's been qualified. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Amen? Now, Revelation 21 to 3 also tells us, John speaking, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for how long? A 
a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up. Don't you wish Satan would just shut up sometimes? And set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. I'm sure all of our minds are saying, why? Now, Satan was never meant to be the God of this world. He was never meant to be the prince of the power of the air. And the fact is, during the millennium, he will be bound and thus his influence stifled. And yet, we know there's going to be sin during the millennium, or there would be no need for death or even judgment. And why would Jesus rule the nations with a rod of iron if everybody is in a perfected state? Now, in Revelation 19.15, we're told that uh, out of Jesus' mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he should do what? Strike the nations, again, proving there'll be sin during the millennium. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Now, Isaiah 35.8 and 65.16 indicate that only believers are going to go into the millennium. Everybody's going to be saved. Everybody's going to believe in Jesus when the millennium starts. And we will, those who survive the tribulation, that is. We will come back with Jesus in a glorified state with those sparkling new bodies. Amen. Told you this is going to be good. New bodies, glorified white horses, covered in our righteous acts. And those who go, are, or who are born, I should say, in the millennium, are going to be born with a sin nature because they are born to unglorified human beings who survived the tribulation but believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, they will need to be ruled by the righteous judge of all the earth. Now, in Zechariah 14, 16, and 19, we're told it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up. Now, we're inside the millennium now. Shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be, whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague which the Lord strikes, uh, with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the what? The punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to the Feast of Tabernacles. Again, we're inside the millennium, so there has to be sin for there to be punishment. So there are going to be people who are born in the millennium who have the same nature that we were born with, and that is uh, that of fallen Adam. Now, the reason for the millennium is for the righteous reign of God to be over all the earth for the first time since before the fall. Listen, during the millennium, there'll be no corrupt politicians. There'll be no world leaders with personal agendas. There'll be no tyrants. There'll be no dictators. Just the perfect king of kings and all who rule with him will be like him. Because we'll be like him when we see him as he is. Now, let's also address the oft-asked question that stems from Ezekiel 40 to 48, which describes the fourth Tab or, uh, temple, rather, the millennial temple gives great detail about it, and it makes mention of the sacrifices that are offered there during the millennium. People often ask, 
Why are there going to be sacrifices? Didn't Jesus die, according to Hebrews 7.27, once for all? So what's the purpose of the sacrifices? Well, we know because only the blood of Jesus can cover our sin. Hebrews says the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. So the purpose of the sacrifices are not sin sacrifices. They are in memoriam of what happened in the past when Jesus went to the cross. Jesus' blood is a reminder that is visualized through these sacrifices in a very real and practical way. The cost for their salvation was paid in blood. Now during the millennium, all sin is going to be dealt with swiftly and fairly by one who has every right to do so. And the only one who's actually qualified to do so. So what will the earth be like during this time? It will have experienced the greatest earthquake since men were on the face of the earth, says Revelation 16. All the grass and trees will have been burned up by a, potentially a volcano or an asteroid or, and a comet strike. Everything in the sea will be dead. Billions of people will have died and lay on the ground unburied. There's no possible way to bury four and a half billion people in the span of seven years when you're running for your life yourself. This is what the world is going to look like. Is that what we're coming back to? Well, what about the restoration that occurs during the millennium? In Zechariah 14, 3 to 9, we're told, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations, those gathered around Jerusalem as he fights in the day of battle. I love that phrase. The Lord will go forth and fight as he fights in the day of battle. Aren't you glad he never loses? He never even has a close call. He wins with authority in all that he does. And in that day, listen close now, his feet, the Lord's feet, Jesus' feet, will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west making a very large valley. The estimation is 35 miles wide. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to us all. Yes, you shall flee as you fled in the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. It shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light, consistent, again, with uh, the events of Revelation. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. And in that day it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it will occur. occur and the Lord shall be, be king over what? All the earth, and in that day it shall be the Lord is one, and his name one. Now, we had to read all that for two reasons. One, because it's awesome. It's just awesome to see what's going to happen, what we're going to uh, be a part of when we come back with him. And the second thing is it established the timing of this event. It's going to happen when Jesus comes back and when his feet touch down on the Mount of Olives. It's described as a time of utter darkness, and when the Lord fights against those who fought against Israel. Now, when his feet touch down on the Mount of Olives, there's a 35-mile-wide valley that opens up. Living waters flow to the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea and bring them back to life. And then these other things will happen simultaneously, I believe. It doesn't make any sense for it to happen gradually. 
the Lord can create everything that we see in six night-day cycles. He can certainly restore the earth with a spoken word, right? Amen. Now, Isaiah 65, 20 tells us about this during the millennium. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days, for the child shall die 100 years old. In other words, if somebody dies when they're 100, it'll be like a baby died during the millennium. But the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. Isaiah 65, 25 says the wolf and the lamb shall feed together. You can use the word feed when you use wolf and lamb, but it's a different context today, right? The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says who? Says the Lord. Micah 4, 3 to 4. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. But everyone, say everyone. Everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of armies has spoken. Now, Isaiah 11, 6, 9 also says, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, as we read earlier, but it adds, The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. The young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. Remember, we're in the millennium here. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, like we read in Isaiah 65. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, in summary, here's how we could describe the restoration that happens during the millennium. The people and the planet will experience the miraculous power of Jesus. The people and the planet will experience the miraculous power of Jesus. Look at what happens just when his feet touch down. This valley opens up. Living waters begin to flow. The Dead Sea, which has been dead for millennia, is going to spring to life. And the Mediterranean and all the fish that were dead there uh, from the events of the tribulation are also going to teem with fish once again and living creatures. And just think about everything we have read thus far. Jesus takes control of the weather. We can see that because he stops the rain on the countries that don't come up for the Feast of Tabernacles. He takes control of the animal kingdom. The bear ceases being carnivorous and the lion and the lamb lie down together differently than they do today. The cobra and the viper are no longer venomous or aggressive. Swords and pruning hooks become harvesting equipment. Wars cease. The uh, lifespan of man returns to what it was in the days of Noah. People lived for centuries. And as we mentioned, if someone dies at 100, it's like an infant had died during the millennium. And we have to remember what Paul said in Romans 8, 20 to 22. That creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. When man fell, the earth was subjected to futility. That means there were consequences on the planet 
because of man's sin, thorns and thistles, we see all the way back being incorporated in uh, Genesis when Adam was uh, feeding his family by the uh, sweat of his brow and toiling with the ground. Think about what's happened since then. Hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, disease. The earth is scarred from the results of war, pollution. Fear between man and the animal kingdom was never what the planet was designed to experience and sin brought all of this into and onto our world. But when the Prince of Peace arrives and we with him, the people and the planet are going to experience the miraculous restorative power of Jesus. And it will go back to what many has, have described as a Eden-like existence on the earth. See, it's not going to be so bad when we return. It won't be anything like it is now. Now, one of the other things that's going to be restored is justice. True justice can only be established and enforced by one who is true and one who is just, and there is only one who is those things, and it is Jesus. Amen? Now, if you remember the famous Christmas verse from Isaiah in 9, 6, and 7, we sing and hear every year, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Now, that's where the fulfillment part of this ceases. And the government will be upon his shoulder. Is that what happened when Jesus came the first time? Was he responsible for global government? No. He's going to shoulder the role of king of the planet during the millennium. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom. Now, David, uh, this reference to David's throne is not a heavenly throne. That's an earthly throne. It's the throne of human government. And uh, David being the king over Israel, that's what's represented here. The king of kings is going to sit in Jerusalem as king and rule from the throne of David, so to speak. Now, to order it and establish it with just judgment and what? Justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now, the child was born. The son was given, but he is yet to sit on the throne of David. And that means he has to come back. He has not yet established our kingdom. Otherwise, why would he say when he was asked to pray, how to pray, pray like this, beginning with hallowing our father, as we mentioned. But he said, pray thy kingdom come, thy will be on earth as it is in heaven. Is that what happened the first time he came? No, then he's got to come back, right? Because if he said to pray that, he's going to answer our prayer and it's going to happen during the millennium. Now remember, Jesus isn't coming back as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. He's coming back as the Lion of Judah to take back and rule with a rod of iron that which he purchased with his own blood. And many believe that when you see the scene in Revelation 4 and 5, and one worthy to open the scroll of him, uh, the scroll in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne and break its seven seals. Many believe that scroll in the right hand of him on the throne is a title deed to the earth. And nobody can redeem the whole planet but Jesus. And he's going to do and has done just that. But he's going to come back and reclaim the spoils of war. And that would include all who believe taken in the rapture, meeting the dead in Christ in the air, and also uh, the planet itself. Now, Jesus is the just one. Amen. He is the only one qualified to rule this planet in peace. 
And he is the ruler during the millennium of the whole earth. Revelation 19.16 reminds us he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, Isaiah 19 also tells us in 19 to 25, in that day there will be an altar to, to the Lord in the midst of the land of where? Egypt. And a pillar to the Lord at its border. And it will be for a sign and for a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt, where they will cry to the Lord because of the oppressors, and he will send them a Savior and a mighty one, that's Jesus, and he will deliver them. Then the Lord will be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day, and will make sacrifice and offering, and they will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. And the Lord will strike Egypt, he will strike it and heal it. And they will return to the Lord. And he will be entreated by them and heal them. In that day, listen to this, we're back in the millennium. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrian will come into Egypt and the Egyptian into Assyria. And the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Boy, talk about strange bedfellows. These are the two most ancient and violent enemies of Israel. The Egyptians held them captive for some 430 years. The Assyrians were notoriously vile and brutal in their treatment of others, and the northern kingdom was actually taken into captivity by the Assyrians, but... Isaiah says there's going to be peace between Israel and their former enemies. That also reminds us the pseudo-peace of the Antichrist is going to unravel quickly because it's a false peace. And no one can bring peace but the Prince of Peace. Amen? Now, here's the point about the ruler of the tribulation. The fallen world, and we've already made the point, I just packaged it uh, now as a point. The fallen world will be ruled by a perfect ruler for the first time. The fallen world will be ruled by a perfect ruler for the first time. Now, whenever we may ponder, why would we come back to this awful place after having been in heaven for seven years? The answer is we're coming back with Jesus. And it's not going to be an awful place. It's going to be an amazing place. And he's going to be ruling the whole planet and we with him. It's going to be an Eden-like environment where people can walk in the cool of the day with the king of kings and Lord of Lords, like Adam and Eve did all the way back in the garden. It's going to be a time where if anybody steps out of line, justice is going to be swift and it's going to be fair, and there's only one who is qualified to be such a ruler, and his name is Jesus. Now, we've seen the reason for the millennium, the restoration during the millennium, and we identified the ruler in the millennium. So what is the result of the millennium? Now think about what we've learned so far. Jesus comes back. His feet touched down on the Mount of Olives. Spontaneous global, uh, a spontaneous global miracle takes place. The badly damaged planet turns back into a type of Garden of Eden. Satan is bound. The beast and the false prophet are in the lake of fire. There's peace on earth. There's peace in the animal kingdom. There's peace between ancient enemies. Justice is fair 
and the world is ruled in absolute and unprecedented perfection by a king who is greater than all kings and a Lord who is over all lords. And the next thing we should read is, and they all lived happily ever after, but we don't. Revelation 27 to 10 says, Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number as is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, a little housekeeping pause here. Because of the mention of Gog and Magog, some have seen this as the Ezekiel War, but it's not. It can't be. The fact is the War of Ezekiel is fought by a limited number of nations. This is the whole world surrounding the city of Jerusalem. The Ezekiel War scenario, though ended by God, only destroys five-sixths of the invading army through raining down hailstones of fire mingled with blood and an earthquake. This is a completely different scenario. After the Ezekiel War, it takes seven months to bury the dead, and there's also seven years of burning the weapons. We read nothing like that after this. Fire comes down from heaven. All the enemies are gone. Consumed, we're told. Now, what happens after this battle is going to be our subject next week. The battle is followed by the great white throne judgment. And it includes all the nations of the earth. The unbelieving dead will be raised and stand before God. And those devoured by fire uh, are also going to stand physically before God as their uh, perishing souls are reunited with their bodies. Now, it is possible, and I would like to say it's even probable, that Gog is the title of a fallen angel. And we have this precedent set in the book of Daniel where Michael is the angel of the good guys who is assigned to Israel. So since Satan is a mimicker and mocker of God, it only makes sense that he could have an angel assigned to particular territories or nations collectively that hate the Jews. And Magog, many believe, is symbolic of all the enemies of Israel and uh, throughout the ages. It's kind of like a Waterloo type expression, this uh, experience we see here. Now, Gog, actually, the word means, or the name means mountain. Magog means the top of the mountain. And mountains in Revelation are used symbolically of kingdom. So it stands to reason that Gog and Magog could be symbolic there too, and I believe they are. Now, a frequent question many people have asked, some of you may be thinking it, why would God release Satan after binding him for a thousand years in such a wonderful and glorious experience going on on the earth. Why not just leave him bound forever? Anybody ever think that? Why would he cut him loose? Now, the answer goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden and God giving man free will to choose to obey or disobey. Remember the 27,000 things God told Adam and Eve they couldn't do? How many was there? One. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what happened afterwards? Hey, let's go check out that tree. 
God said to stay away from. Well, all the way back in the garden, man had to have that ability to choose. And that's the same thing we see here in our text. And the reason Satan is released after the thousand years is because forced obedience is not the relationship God wants to have. That's not the relationship he wants to have with man. He wants to have a loving relationship. And robotic obedience requires no love. Love requires free will. Free will requires choices. And therefore, Satan is going to be released for a short time. So those born in the millennium, not the glorified saints, but those born in the millennium can choose between him and the one that they have seen rule in righteousness. Now, Joshua reminds us in that famous passage of 24, 14 to 15 in his farewell address. He says, now, therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt, serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, what's the next word? Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will what? Serve the Lord. This is why Satan is released at the end of the millennium. A choice had to be made even after a thousand years of world peace, a thousand years of true justice, a thousand years of an Eden-like perfection on the earth, a thousand years of the visible, touchable, approachable presence of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And Psalm 72 gives us a great picture of the millennium in one through eight, where the psalmist writes, give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. The mountains will bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain on the grass before mowing like showers of water the earth. In his days the righteous shall what? Flourish in abundance of peace until the moon is no more. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. And this is King Solomon writing. And he captures the essence of the millennial kingdom so beautifully and wonderfully. And yet, after Satan is released, after all that, for a thousand years, a numberless multitude like the sands of the sea come from every corner of the earth to unite with Satan and overthrow, seek to overthrow the kingdom of righteousness and the king as well. And fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. So what is the end result of the millennium? Well, I think in point form, we could say this. The millennium proves no matter what God does, many will choose Satan over him. The millennium proves that no matter what God does, many will choose Satan over him. I also want you to think about the arguments that are eliminated by the millennium. People deny the existence of God and God in human flesh will dwell with them on the earth for a thousand years. People say, how could a God of love allow war? Jesus is going to usher in peace for a thousand years. 
People say, how could God allow children to be sick or die? People will live for hundreds of years during the millennium. People say God is not fair. The whole millennium is going to be true and fair justice, and it will have been practiced the entire time on the entire earth for the entire thousand years. I've always looked at the millennium as God having exhausted his efforts to reach man and rescue him from his fallen state. If you think about it, in the garden, after initial creation, he let man do what he wanted. There was no law. There was nothing to obey. He said, stay away from the tree. Don't eat of it. He ate of it anyway. The Lord set a guard so he couldn't come back in the garden and eat from uh, the tree of life and therefore continually be in a fallen state forever and ever. Push man out of the garden. Said, all right, go do your thing. But there weren't any other rules set. And what happened? Wickedness and violence filled the earth. And in some 2,000 years, God saw the heart of man was so wicked that he wiped out the whole planet except for eight people. Now, what happened after that? He gave man a law to follow. He said, you know what? If you do these things, it'll be better for you and pleasing to me. What did man do? He didn't do any of it. Nobody lived up to the law. And they added things that God never intended for them to add to his law. So what did God do? He sent his only begotten son into the world to die for the sins of the world. And what happened? People killed him, right? So then God put his spirit inside of man. The presence of his spirit lives in us today. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit today. Amen. And what happens? Man hates people with God's spirit just like they hated God and his son Jesus. So finally, the son of God comes to earth as a lion, slays his enemies. Only believers inhabit the earth. And after only a thousand years, the offspring of these people turn against Jesus in massive numbers. So, the millennium justifies the great white throne judgment in hell. Because the millennium completes every way that God could possibly seek to save humankind. He let them do their own thing. He gave them rules and regulations. He sent his own son and they killed him. He comes back, his son comes back and rules and reigns in righteousness. Satan is released for a short time. And people in number like the sands of the sea from all over the planet say, let's go take Jerusalem and get rid of this king. What else could God do? You know, Isaiah, I believe it's in chapter 5, where the Lord talks about his vineyard. The Lord says, you know, I wanted grapes, but it brought me thorns and thistles. He said, I tended it, cared for it. What else was I supposed to do? And that's exactly what the millennium proves. What else can God do? His son himself rules this place in absolute perfection for a thousand years and massive numbers of people choose Satan over him. That's the reason, restoration, ruler, and result of the millennium. And to that I say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen? Pray with me, please. And Father, again, we're so thankful that you have given us this information, Lord. As tough as it is to read, as wonderful as it is to read simultaneously, how beautiful the earth is going to be, how glorious and what an honor it will be to rule and reign in righteousness with you, seated on the throne of David, bringing this world to a place that it was always intended to be, even though it's for an abbreviated time of a thousand years. And we thank you, Lord, for the things we've heard and learned through uh, our time together on these Wednesday nights. But Lord, I pray 
uh, that you would indeed sweep through this land once again. Our nation is spiraling downward, morally, spiritually. Uh, Lord, it just seems like everything up is down, down is up, good is bad, and bad is good, and all the other things we're all experiencing. So we pray for our country, pray for our world, obviously, Lord, but you put us here, we were born here, or brought here, choose to live here, whatever the case may be. So we pray for the United States of America. I pray we're not in Scripture because the rapture cleans us out. So Lord, move in this land, we pray. And God, as David wrote, it's time for you to act. For they regarded your law as void. Act on behalf of your people, we pray. Protect us, Lord, even as Spurgeon ran across Psalm 91 during the plague. And he saw that word on the cobbler's window, the plague shall not come near you. Lord, I pray this plague not come near your people and make a difference between us and those who hate you, I pray. Lord, we're thankful again for this time. We thank you for telling us how things, uh, where things are headed and next week how things are going to end. And we give you all the praise and glory due your name. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said,